Romans 11, 33 through 36. I'll be reading all of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How many people boast in their own intellect and they create a God who fits with their own ideas? Consider, for the example, the words of one theologian. This is what he says about hell. I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition, which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend torturing people without end, is not what our God does. Note how he begins. I consider, I consider. He says the traditional doctrine of hell, the doctrine that Christians have believed throughout history is outrageous. He says that such a God is more like Satan. And that a God like this is a fiend. How dangerous it is to make ourselves the judge of what is right. I read recently of another theologian, as we've just studied Romans 9 through 11 lately. And he says, Romans 9 through 11 can't teach election because such a God would be unjust. He says in his article, this is an evangelical theologian, he says in in the article, we know in advance, we know in advance, no matter what the verses say, that that can't be true. Because we know what is just. And such a view isn't 
just his sense of justice determines what the Bible says. C.S. Lewis warned us of this, didn't he? He warned us of making ourselves the judge and making God the defendant. He warned us of putting God on trial. And then deciding whether God is innocent or guilty instead of humbly receiving and believing what God reveals, we become the judge of what is right and wrong. But who do we think we are that we would become God's counselor and his advisor? Well, let's turn to our passage for the day. And I see four truths. I'm actually... Lucas rightly announced that the sermon text is uh, verses 33 through 36, but I'm picking up a thread from last week, verse 32. I just didn't have time to do it. So I'm going to start with verse 32 in these four truths. The first truth is God structures history to maximize his mercy. That's verse 32. He structures, he arranges history to maximize his mercy. Second, we must trust God's wisdom rather than our own. And that's in verses 33 and 34, trusting God's wisdom and not our own. Thirdly, God never owes us a debt. That's verse 35. God never owes us a dime. And fourth, we must give all the glory to God because he deserves all the glory. That's verse 36. So let's begin with verse 32. God structures history to maximize his mercy. Verse 32 says, For God has consigned or shut up all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We have to see here the context of Romans 9 through 11, really the context of Romans 1 through 8 as well. Paul thinks here especially of Jews and Gentiles. That's been a big issue in Romans. And he's saying, neither Jews or Gentiles deserve God's mercy. God is confined all under disobedience. So if you've been with us in Romans, or if you know this letter, you know that Paul begins from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, showing that all are enclosed under sin. Both Jews and Gentiles, or to use Paul's order, both Gentiles... And Jews have failed to do God's will and cannot be righteous before God on the basis of their works. I mean, this verse just confirms that, doesn't it? God has shut up, God has consigned all under disobedience. Both Jews and Gentiles have failed to do God's will. If we understand God's holiness, we know that we deserve his wrath. We know that we deserve eternal Punishment, contrary to our theologian, we deserve eternal punishment for our rebellion. We have turned our back against our sovereign king. We have followed our own wisdom instead of his. We followed our own rules instead of his. You know, in, in the words of that Billy Joel song, we've said to God, this is my life. Go ahead, live your own life, leave me alone. But God will rightly punish us 
for our sins. But praise God, as we've sung so wonderfully today, justice and punishment aren't the last word. They're not the only word. Because the verse says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's thinking especially of his of God's plan for Jews and Gentiles. And he's sketched in that plan for us, hasn't he, in Romans 9 through 11. He structured history to maximize and highlight his mercy. How is that so? God began by choosing the Jews. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, a small, insignificant, unworthy people. But he chose to enter a covenant with them and to be their God and to save them and deliver them. But then the Jews get used to being the chosen people. Of course we're the chosen people. There was even a Jewish tradition that said God chose us because he offered the law to the whole world and everybody else said no, but we said yes. Pat ourselves on the back. We're the only smart nation. We're the only wise nation. We're the only virtuous nation. The Jews began to take God's grace for granted. So surprise, surprise, when the Christ came, the Jews did not believe mainly. But the Gentiles believed then. The Gentiles embraced Christ. The Gentiles who were unworthy, unholy, unrighteous, they were the ones that were saved. But Paul warns us, doesn't he, in the very chapter that Lucas just read, that the Gentiles then can begin to pat themselves on the back. Look, we're smarter than the Jews. We've responded to God's grace. What's wrong with the Jewish people? And Paul warns them, he warns us, he warns me and you, against pride, doesn't he? And then he says, God's going to surprise us again. Just when we think it's over for the Jews, just when we think they'll never respond, at the end of history, he's going to show them his mercy and grace again. And so it will be so clear that salvation is due to the mercy of God. What does it mean in verse 32 when he says that God has mercy on all? It's an important question. What does he mean that he has mercy on all? It doesn't mean that he has mercy on every single person without exception. Not, not saving mercy. It doesn't mean that. God doesn't show saving mercy to every person without exception. Now, in context, when he says all, he refers here to Jews and Gentiles. God doesn't show his mercy to all without exception, but he shows mercy because all aren't saved, right? Not every person is saved. He shows mercy to all without distinction, both Jews and Gentiles. There's no people group left out. So God's, he shows mercy to all in that sense. What's the application for us, for me? I am amazed at how easily I take God's mercy to me for granted. I want to see and I want to taste that it's mercy. 
I want to sing, when I'm singing here and in other places, I want to sing of that mercy with reality. I don't want to just say the words. I want to experience that mercy. I don't want to just mouth things. When God shows his mercy to us, when we've sinned, we appreciate his mercy, don't we? So so God exposes our sin regularly. If you're sensitive to God, every day, every week, he exposes our sin to us. We're not to be discouraged by that, but to confess it and praise God for his mercy. And, and, that's not all, is there? And pray for renewal. Pray that we will follow him. But we praise him for his wonderful and saving mercy. And we thank him. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us so that we taste the mercy of God. I think of this just from an ordinary example in everyday life. I could have chosen a lot of things. If you suffer from migraine headaches, you're sapped of all energy because of them. But look, no matter what it is, we don't deserve We don't deserve, we don't deserve to live without headaches. Instead, living without headaches is a mercy, isn't it? And when you recover from a migraine, you give thanks. How wonderful it is to live without a migraine. What a mercy. And what a mercy to live under the favor of God. How wonderful it is to know that God smiles upon us in Christ Jesus. How wonderful to know, if you belong to Jesus, how wonderful it is to know that God is not angry with us, but he forgives us of all of our sins if we belong to Jesus Christ. Other people may be upset with us. Other people may be disappointed with us. Maybe rightly so. But God looks upon us with favor in Christ Jesus. He loves us. Second, we must trust God's wisdom rather than our own. We see this in verses 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? First, just a little comment. I I don't think we're to sharply distinguish between the words wisdom and, and knowledge here. I think they basically overlap and are synonymous. But Paul is thinking of all that he's taught in the last three chapters here, about the election of Jews and Gentiles to salvation. And he's thinking of the whole plan of salvation that he's sketched in in Romans 1 through 8. He reflects on God's plan for all of history and is struck with the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God's judgments and God's ways refer both to his work of salvation and to his work of judgment. And how wise 
it is. And how it is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. His judgments can't be discovered through research and through human intellect. No matter how hard we study, no matter how much time we put in, God's ways can't be tracked down. That's, that's what that word means. It's untrackable by us. Can't be followed like a path can be followed through the wilderness. We can't follow his tracks. Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40. And he says, does anyone know the mind of the Lord? What's the answer? A resounding no. Did God need any advisors or counselors in his plans for the world? And the answer is, of course not. In verse 34, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. In the context of Isaiah 40, Israel is sure that God has abandoned them. They're convinced that God can't deliver them because they're in exile, that God can't deliver them from Babylon because Babylon is a superpower. It's the power in the world. And the Lord says to Israel, you don't understand anything at all. Don't measure me. Don't measure me by your understanding. You think Babylon is a superpower, and the human beings they are. Of course, today, the superpower is the United States, isn't it? But Babylon, the Lord says, they're like a drop in the bucket. Can you see it? Barely. What is Babylon like to me, says the Lord? They're like grasshoppers jumping around down there. And God's looking down and saying, yeah, yeah, I I think I see them. Those little grasshoppers. Yeah, they're, they're there. They're insignificant. I will deliver you, Israel, when you're weak and gasping for breath, because I am the mighty God. I'm going to show my glory to the world by delivering you from Babylon. I'm going to show the world that I'm the only Savior. Beware. Beware. Beware of human wisdom. Don't think that you... This is a great temptation. We face many hard things in life. Don't think that you ultimately know what is right. Don't think you can become the judge of God. How many have rejected God's electing grace because they think it's unfair? How many reject original sin because it doesn't make any sense to them? How many dismiss dismiss the Trinity because they think that's nonsense? How many think that Christ could not be fully God and fully man and one person? Maybe a little closer to home. How many say that God could not and would not have commanded the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, man, woman, and child? How many say he could not and would not have done that? Because that's unjust. That can't be right. We know better when the scripture is very clear. It's what God did command. Here is the word of the Lord. Just when did you become the God of the universe? Who in the world 
do you think you are? How arrogant of you to think that your intellect matches and surpasses Almighty God. Do any of us, do any of us in this room think we're smart and we're intelligent? We're not. We're babies. We're children before God. Far be it from any of us to claim wisdom. The only wisdom we have has been revealed to us by God. We haven't figured out anything. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us we only know God because the Spirit has revealed God to us. We only know the depths of God through the Spirit of God. We only know the truths of God through the Scriptures. So let us humbly receive what God has given us through His Word. Humbly like children. That's a joyful thing to do from our Father, isn't it? To humbly receive His wisdom. Let us not become judges of what God has said. But let us take Him at His word and trust Him. If we begin to fall into that, recognize that we are falling prey to great pride. And if you're counseling someone doing that, recognize that is what is happening. They are filled with pride. Maybe that's not the smartest thing to say to them right away, but recognize that. Pride has filled their hearts. That brings us to our third truth. Third, God never owes us a debt. He doesn't owe us a dime. We see this in verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who's given a gift to God so that God says, I'll pay you back? And the answer, obviously, is no one. Here Paul quotes from Job chapter 41, verse 11. This is the part of Job, Job chapters 38 through 41, where the Lord, after this long dispute about Job's righteousness and suffering, that the Lord comes in. And we know, we know from the book of Job, don't we? Job wasn't perfect, but Job was not suffering because of his sin. Job was a righteous man. The the friends got it wrong, didn't they? Job was a righteous man. He was seeking God. His suffering wasn't due to his sin. But Job did question God's justice as the account continues. Over and over again, he begins to question God's justice. Job begins to question whether what God has done is right. He's not finally condemned for that, is he? He's a a human being. But he begins to say, this isn't right, God. He begins to say to God, I want a trial and I'm going to prove I'm right. He begins to advise God about how the universe should be run. I, I had someone very close to me who would say, often, often, He'd begin a sentence like this. If I were God, and then he'd say what he'd do. That's an awesome thing to say, isn't it? If I were God, boom, boom, boom. Here's what I'd do. Job was falling into that. So the Lord says to Job, who in the world do you think you are anyway? Does the morning dawn 
every day by your power? Do, do you send, Job, do you send rain and snow on the earth? Are you in charge of that? Should I hand that over to you? Do you feed lions, Job, when they're hungry? Do you, do you take care of them? Did you create the majestic horse and the soaring hawk? If so, Job, take over. Just run the universe. Or, Job, have you forgotten you're a creature? Have you forgotten how small you are and how great I am? You know, this verse from Job comes in a discussion about Leviathan in chapter 41. I don't have time to defend this here. Not everybody would agree with this. You make up your own minds. But I think a Leviathan here is Satan. And the Lord is teaching us here. No human being can master or control Satan. The only one who has control over Satan is God himself. God instructs Job. I'm the only one who has the strength and understanding to deal with evil in the world. Don't begin to question my justice to defend yourself. So Paul picks up that thread of what God reveals to Job in verse 35. Who gives a gift to God so that God repays him? And the answer is God is a debtor to no one. No one adds to God's excellence. God is self-sufficient and needs nothing as Acts 17.25 teaches us. Instead, he gives to all life and breath and all things. Everything comes from him. This clearly applies to salvation. None of us can do good works and merit or earn God's favor. I was reading Chad Sheffield's testimony in The Messenger. So members, do you read those? Those are good to read and they're very encouraging to read. So I was reading his testimony in The Messenger. And what led him to see Christ was when his friend said, I think I was reading the computer or something, we're going to hell. We're all going to hell or something like that. And that startled Chad. You know, his friend wasn't a Christian. And we're going to hell. And it startled Chad and he started to read the Bible. And when we read the scriptures, it's clear. Our sins separate us from God. We can't give God anything. We can't merit his favor. Our only hope is if God gives us life. We can't, we can't give to him so that he repays us. No, he has to give to us. But praise God, Christ died for sinners, offering salvation to all who will turn to him and believe in him and repent. Those who seek God. If you're not a Christian today, those who seek God, if you seek him, you'll find him. If you knock, he promises. That means intense seeking, though. If you knock, not just a light little knock, but if you knock, he'll open that door. How does our inability to give anything to God apply to our love and service in the body, in the church? The scriptures command us to love and to serve one another. But we must never think... Especially if you're active, we must never think that our service puts God in debt to us. We must never think that God needs us to accomplish His work. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need Clifton Baptist. 
We could vanish today. And praise God, his work would go on, wouldn't it? His kingdom would come. His will would be done. God doesn't need us, but he does use us, doesn't he, for his glory. But our service to him should therefore flow out of love and gratefulness for what God has done for us. If we begin to be disgruntled and unhappy as we serve, if that begins to dominate our lives, we must check what is going on. Are we serving to impress God? Is that what's going on? Are we we expecting to get favor from God? Or are we serving to impress other people? Or are we serving out of a response of receiving mercy? If we're serving out of a response of receiving mercy, it'll be replenished, won't it? You get tired serving, but it'll be replenished by the grace and mercy of God. But if we're serving to get the approval of God or the approval of others, it won't be replenished because we need God. We need His grace. So let us ask God to grant us grace so that our service and love flow out of His mercy. May we understand that serving others is a joy and a privilege. It's an overflow of the mercy we've received. And that brings us to our last point. Fourth, we must give all glory to God. Verse 36 expresses this beautifully, and we're going to sing a song at the end that I, that I love about this verse. Or that really says this verse. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So in Romans 9 through 11, and in Romans 1 through 8, Paul thinks of God's plan for the world. And as he closes these chapters, his heart wells up in praise to God. He sees the goodness and the sovereignty of God. How good God has been to every one of us. How many gifts he gives us every day. How he has lavished his love on us. The Psalms call upon us to praise God because he reigns, because he rules over all. Let us be full of joy because the sovereign God rules. Because all things come from him, from the sovereign God who loves us. And has sent his son for our redemption. God is not only the source of all things. He's also the mediator of all things. All things are given to us also through him. He's not merely the ultimate cause of things. He is the means by which his gifts are given to us. He's working in and through everything that happens. John prayed this today, didn't he? He's working in and through everything that happens for our good even if we can't see how or why he's working. Finally, God is the goal of all things. The world was not created for our sake, but for his sake. The world is not man-centered, it's God-centered. So in everything our thought must be, what would bring glory to God? 
What would God have me do? How can I live my life to praise Him and to honor Him? The first question isn't, what would my friends have me to do? The first question isn't even, what would my parents have me do? Although, ordinarily, children, right? Ordinarily, in the course of things, you're called upon to obey your parents. But that's the first question. The first question is, what would God have me to do? To glorify Him in everything. You know, I came to a place in my life where my parents and I diverged. Not, not in our love for one another. I loved my parents deeply and they loved me. But my parents didn't really want me to serve and follow Jesus Christ. They thought I'd become too fanatical. They thought my desires weren't good. And I just want to say, as a young Christian, of course, I made many mistakes. But there was a choice there. Was I going to follow what they wanted or was I going to follow what Jesus wanted? And Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In all things, God is to be glorified. God must be our goal and aim in everything. He comes first. Not what our parents want. Not what your friends want. Not what you finally fundamentally want. But what does He want? And because all things come from God, and all things are through God, and all things are to God or for God, therefore God gets the glory in everything. And the glory will be His forever. The Bible is clear. He doesn't give His glory to another. God is worthy of glory, isn't He? As our sovereign Creator. As the one who made us. Jesus Christ is worthy of glory as our Redeemer. The Holy Spirit is worthy of glory as the one who applies salvation to our hearts. So as we close, may our hearts be lifted up in praise. For we glorify God by thanking Him. We, we glorify God by rejoicing in Him. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are happiest Our hearts find rest when they praise you. We know, Lord, we were made to praise you. And, Lord, we praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for the wisdom of your plan in saving Jews and Gentiles, in working out your purposes, your judgments, your ways in the world. May we glorify you, Lord, by believing in your word instead of trusting our own intellect. May we glorify you by recognizing that we can give you nothing but by acknowledging that all good things come from you. Oh, Lord, keep our hearts from coldness. May we find our joy. May we find our rest in praising you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.